scripture reading is in two places this morning. First in Psalm 139, and then in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Psalm 139, we'll read the first 18 verses. And then in Luke chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 23 and read through to verse 38. And I'll remind you of that when we get there. While you're finding your place, let me say it's a great joy and a delight to be back with you. Uh, We missed you, um, and we're thrilled to be back today. Psalm 139, beginning of verse 1 through to verse 18. Listen, this is God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I I'm still with you. And now over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3. And at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, 
the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosom, the son of Almadan, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What are some of the first things we do when we see a newborn baby? Probably the first thing we do is we spend an appropriate amount of time ooing and awing. She clearly is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. And then the next thing we do, we start to look from the baby to the mother and from the father to the baby and from the baby to the father and from the mother to the baby and we start to notice a couple of things. We start to notice some resemblances. Oh, she has her mother's eyes and hair. That's great. Uh-oh, dad's nose and chin. Tough break. Maybe she'll grow out of them because she won't be able to grow a beard to cover them. And we start to notice that this child looks a lot like her parents. But there are some areas we might say she doesn't look like them at all. And then, of course, grandparents get into the game. And they start to notice and want to lay claim to some resemblance to their side of the family over the others. And out come the baby pictures, as if those comparisons are going to be predictive. We make comparisons and we recognize children are and are not like their parents. And that's what I want to explore with you today when we think about the birth of baby Jesus who is and who is unlike his parents. And I want to do that in the backdrop of this comment as a bit of an aside perhaps, but you'll see how it is relevant, I hope. 
Because as Christians, we, we rightly look on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as those bedrock events upon which our salvation depends, rightly. In fact, if someone asks us what it means to be a Christian, we say, we believe in Jesus who died for our sins and who was raised from the dead. And if someone were to ask, well, why did he need to do that? And we were to engage in a more extended conversation, we probably would start talking about sin. And we might even use language of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 5, which we heard today to describe how Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And, and since Adam represented us in addition to our own personal sins and our own personal sin problem, we, we have Adam's sin imputed to us or applied to us. We are counted or reckoned by God as being in Adam and as having sinned in him. And so we want to be quick to point out, along with Paul, that, that Jesus comes to deal with our sin problem. Jesus is the second Adam in whose death and in whose resurrection we are now counted as righteous. Just as Jesus died in my place and Jesus rose from the dead in my place, so I died with him and I'm now live in him. And this, we might say, is at the very heart of the gospel message, and of course it is. But isn't it also fair to say that our gospel message is truncated or shortchanged if it does not also include a robust expression of how this Jesus came to be? In other words, don't we do ourselves and the world a disservice if in our gospel proclamation we only ever talk about Good Friday and Easter Sunday and we neglect a celebration of Christmas? Because if the death and the resurrection of Jesus are good news, they are good news because his miraculous birth and his sinless life are good news. And so this morning, I want to show you how and why the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ is good news. We'll do that by looking at Psalm 139 and by looking at the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, and we'll notice how Jesus is and is not like his parents and why all of this is good news. So we're going to look at the good news in Psalm 139, and then we're going to come over to Luke 3, and then we're going to go back to the psalm. And the good news in Psalm 139 is that every life is a marvel and a mystery, a gift to be enjoyed and celebrated. Psalm 139, you remember, draws us into all the mystery that surrounds the very beginnings of life. It invites us to celebrate the God who is all-knowing, who's everywhere present, who's all-powerful. Or if we want to use those big words, we say he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. Psalm 139 is a joyful confession of faith. It's a delight in God's complete and comprehensive and intimate knowledge of us, his people. He sees us. He knows us, cares for us from inside and out, from the beginnings of our life in the womb to the end of our life and beyond in the tomb. 
and that every moment in between is a confession that allows us to acknowledge our utter transparency before God. The inescapable presence of God, the unstoppable power of God. There's nowhere on earth we could go to escape Him. There's nothing we can think or imagine or say or do that lies outside of the gaze or the direct knowledge of God. God's knowledge of us takes into account our actions, our speech, our movements. He knows when we sit, when we rise. He knows where we go, when we stay. He knows our inner and our most secret part of us, that part hidden from others and even those parts of us that are not fully known by us ourselves. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows what we are thinking even if we never say it. And those things we do under the cover of darkness, we imagine no one else sees, are not hidden from him because in him there is no darkness. And along with his comprehensive knowledge of us, we gladly confess his everywhere presence. If we were able to scale the heights of the mountains or cast ourselves into the very depths of the sea, if we were to submerge ourselves in the canyons of the sea, if we were to go into the very grave itself, he is there. We cannot outrun him, we cannot escape him, we cannot hide from him. And notice his knowledge of us, his presence with us, his care for us are not dependent on our awareness of those qualities and characteristics and attributes of of God. One of my favorite lines in the psalm is the last line of verse 18 where we ended, I awake and I am still with you. Even in our unconscious or subconscious or non-responsive states, while the world continues to spin, our troubles continue to exist, when we relinquish control of our lives, when we are oblivious to the world around us, when we are oblivious even to the presence and the power and the protection of God, even then, He's still present. He still cares for us. At those moments when we are utterly aware, unaware rather, of his presence, he's still there. Or to put it another way, your lack of awareness of his presence and of his protection does not mean he ever stops being present with you or he ever stops protecting you. Or to put it yet another way, he sees you When you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. Now, I should pause here for a moment and say, if you do not know Jesus, if you are not right with God, Psalm 139 should terrify you. It should get your attention at least. If you imagine that you can somehow run from God or hide from him, To hear that he is all-knowing and all-seeing and everywhere present is a fearful and frightening reality. You need to deal with that. You need to recognize that. And there's a solution for that. 
Because notice the psalm does not convey fear or fright. And that's because it's not describing a desire to hide from God or to be hidden from Him or to escape from Him or to run away. Rather, it's the voice of a child of God who rests in, who rejoices in, who finds great comfort and joy and delight in this kind of a God who knows me so well and who is always with me and always cares for me. Comforted by God's knowledge of all things. It's the cry of someone who rejoices to know that there's nowhere he can go or where she can go where God is not present. The one who rests in the awareness of God's strong and powerful hand, guarding, protecting, leading, holding. Rather than being afraid of this God, the psalmist marvels, confesses God's mysterious thoughts. His utter, complete, total knowledge, his unstoppable care, and they are all precious to him. And then, of course, right there in the middle of the psalm, we find one of the clearest expressions in all the Bible of the value and the sanctity of human life. We're reminded that life begins at conception, that God forms us and knits us together in our mother's womb, and that when we count our fingers and our toes, when we ponder the complexities of the human eyeball or our ability to taste and to touch and to smell, we praise God. For we are fearfully and wonderfully made And even as we were being knitted together, when we were yet this unformed mass, God knew us, had a plan for us, had counted out our days ahead of us for us because it was God who was knitting us together. God has his personal diary for us in which is written a record of every one of our days before they come to be. And with a beginning and an end, God has counted all the days allotted for us in the middle. And we need to, of course, recognize here that uh, science and medicine have taught us so much more than uh, David could have ever known about reproduction and obstetrics and pediatrics. But if our science and medicine have taken away some of the mystery, they have not been able to deprive us of the marvel not just in how we are put together, but in, that, in those dark nine months, God is at work putting us together, knitting us together, body and soul, to look something like our moms and dads, to be made after their likeness, but in the image of God. And he does all that while he's forming and growing all of our parts and pieces into a whole and while we draw nutrition from our mother's bodies. That's the marvel and the miracle of birth and life. And we'll come back to Psalm 139 in a few moments, but notice with me as we turn over to Luke chapter 3 how the genealogy of Jesus is also good news for us. The birth of Jesus is good news for us because it's unlike any other birth. 
Luke's genealogy reminds us that until Jesus arrives, there is this unbroken chain from Joseph, the man who would marry Mary, all the way back to Adam, and it is a chain of fathers begetting sons and sons being begotten by their fathers. And Jesus is going to be able to trace his line all the way back through some notable figures and through some figures you've never heard of before. But he's going to be able to trace his line all the way back to Adam, the first man. And because Adam is the son of God, Jesus is also in this way God's son. But notice that this long line, more specifically, is a long line of sinful sons begotten of sinful fathers all the way back to sinful Adam, where each child is a chip off the old block, where each son is an apple that doesn't fall far from the tree, like father, like son, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And let me frame the problem for you using the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks this, how is the original sin of Adam or, and Eve, our first parents, how is that original sin conveyed to their posterity of which we are? And the answer is given this way, original sin is conveyed from our first parents to their posterity by natural or ordinary generation so as all that proceed from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. And you can guess, I'm sure you're running way ahead of me by now, you can guess Psalm 51 is the text offered to support that explanation. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, we sin because we are sinners. And the good news here, at least a significant part of the good news, is this is not true of Jesus. Jesus breaks that chain, that chain that goes from Joseph, the man who would marry Mary, all the way back to Adam. That previously unbroken chain of sinful sons being born of sinful fathers. Luke gives us a little hint, of course, when he says Joseph, uh, that Jesus was the son as was supposed of Joseph. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in all things is like us but without sin. And that means unlike every other boy ever born, He has no inherited sin. He would go on living a life resisting temptation at every turn so that he never has any personal sin. And this should fill out a little bit of our understanding about what's going on when we get to the cross and and to the resurrection. But notice, if you remember this, how the Westminster Confession uses the word ordinary generation or natural generation, qualifying the transmission of sin through generation after generation from father to son to son down the road. 
qualifying it by using the word ordinary or natural. Luke 1.35, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary said, how can this be? I've not known a man. Jesus breaks the chain. Jesus has characteristics about him that you will not find in his earthly parents. But now imagine, come back with me to Psalm 139, and imagine Jesus singing that song. You see, everything we affirm in Psalm 139 is true of every child ever born. A marvel, a mystery, amazing. But now notice the extra level of complexity and wonder that come with a child conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The conception, the conception is a marvel, not just, not just because Joseph is a non-participant, but because this child is the eternal and the eternally begotten Son of God the Father whose life as a man begins with this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit as he is being formed and put together in the womb of the Virgin under the all-seeing eye of his Father in heaven. Or you could ponder the complexity of the Creed of Chalcedon. The birth we celebrate at Christmas is the birth of Jesus Christ, one person who has two natures who's at the same time fully God and fully man. And because he is fully God, we have to say of him that every property and quality and characteristic of God we see in Psalm 139 is just as true of him as they are of the Father and the Spirit. He shares, as eternal Son of God, he shares with his Father and the Spirit of, in omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence. He sets aside the glories of heaven, and this is what's new and amazing. He becomes man. He becomes what he was not. Now, fully God, fully man in one person. And if it's not an amazing marvel and a mystery to imagine how life is knitted together in the womb, add to that this life. Add to that all of the complexities and the mysteries and the marvel of the eternal Son of God becoming man. Two natures of one person not commingled or confused. Those two natures are uh, held together without division or separation. Neither nature is changed by virtue of that union. The divine and the human remain distinct. They do not lose their characteristics or properties by virtue of that inseparable union. And at the same time, they're held together in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just so that everything we say about God in Psalm 139 is true of the second person of the Trinity, of the eternal Son of God, we can also say that the marvel and the mystery, the miracle of this birth that surrounds every other birth can be said of Jesus 
but now amplified, expanded, because he's not like any other human life. The conception, the gestation, the formation of Jesus Christ and the knitting together of two natures into one person. And yet at the same time, there's no one better who can recite Psalm 139 more truly than the Lord Jesus himself. He knew that his Father in heaven from eternity past had known him. And that as he's being formed in Mary's womb, the Father's constant care for him will extend through his life. That his Father's intimate, complete knowledge of him will go with him from beginning to end. These are his constant companions throughout his life. And because Joseph was only his supposed father, he breaks that chain of inherited sin. And if you notice where Luke places his genealogy and what comes next, he goes and is tempted in the wilderness. And you can see him start to relive the life of Adam and the life of Israel. Except for him, he says no. When he's tempted, he resists. So not only does he have no inherited sin, he ends up with no personal sin. And with the power of the Holy Spirit resting on him from conception, then reinforced or renewed at his baptism all the way through his life, Jesus will go to the cross and he will suffer and he will die. Not because of his inherited sin, not because of his personal sin, but because of your sin. Imputed to him. Your sin placed on him, the truly spotless lamb from the beginning. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he's bearing the weight of your sin. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's because your sin has been satisfied. God's justice satisfied for your sin. When he's placed in the grave, even there he's not far from the presence and the power of God who raises him from the dead. So his death and his resurrection are good news. They are the bedrock of our faith and of our being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But they make little sense if you can also give some robust explanation of how this Jesus came to be. And so for all those who experience some kind of angst about Christmas falling on a Sunday when we normally celebrate the resurrection, you can have both. You can rejoice in the death and resurrection of Christ, but you can rejoice in Christmas. Enjoy it, celebrate it, embrace it. Enjoy, celebrate, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ who came. Free from inherited sin, repudiating all temptation to sin, free from personal sin, but going to the cross with your sin, rising from the dead for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of Christmas. Thank you for this good news. Thank you, Lord, that you give us opportunity to explore some of the robust ways 
we can think about who Jesus is, how he came to be. And even as we do this, we find ourselves drawn back with a sense of deep humility at the, all the things we cannot put together, cannot understand, cannot even explain. We thank you for what we know. We thank you for what we don't know and can't know. Lord, thank you for the mystery and the marvel of life and of life in your Son. Receive our thanks, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come, to enter into this world, to take on our flesh, and then so profoundly unjustly take on the curse and the death due to sin. Because it wasn't yours, it was ours. But thank you for doing this, for satisfying your Father's justice and wrath. For giving us new life, we praise you, Holy Spirit, for your work in bringing order and form to an unformed and disordered creation in the beginning, and for giving form and order to our Savior as he was being knit together in his mother's womb, and in giving form and shape to us, transforming us to become like him. Father, Son, and Spirit, we rejoice this day. Receive our thanks. Inspire us with a desire to walk with humility, to honor Christ, to proclaim the good news, and to be faithful until Jesus comes again. We pray all this to you, God, our Father, in the power and of the name of your Son, Jesus, inspired as we are by your Spirit. Triune God, receive our thanks. And all God's people say together, amen.